Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. It is still the 10th of September, 2023, and I'm doing an afternoon session because I wanted to finish off, if possible, Hashimoto's thyroiditis and maybe this whole arc of lectures. Uh, probably won't finish it with this lecture because I have a little bit more cleanup to do, but I wanted to make sure I got this thyroiditis uh, story completed because we've been spending a number of lectures on it, which is fine, but it definitely needs closure. So this will be, as I said, um, a lecture on um, the bioenergetic axis of sexual dimorphism, particularly associated with diseases between men and women. And it's going to be chapter 15. So, Hashimoto thyroiditis, or HT, um, was first described over a hundred years ago, and the initial presentation was an enlarged thyroid gland that was infiltrated with lymphocytes, which were producing uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. The incidence of HT is about 0.3 to 1.5 per 1,000, and the female to male dominance is why we're talking about it, and it's between 7 to 10 women to every one man who uh, contracts this disorder. Uh, It does have an ethnic preponderance, as they say, and that's in the white race. And also there's an associated age assimilant in that the prevalence of Hashimoto's thyroiditis in white women increases with age. And that's not unlike a lot of autoimmune diseases like myasthenia gravis, systemic sclerosis, uh, and and many other connective tissue diseases. Uh, We talked about Sorgen's syndrome. We didn't go into detail of that syndrome. We can if you like, but I wasn't planning on it but also pernicious anemia and celiac. Now, more rarely, HT is accompanied by a host of other endocrinopathies. And these are also associated with an autoimmune status. So there are autoimmune polyendocrine syndromes, a whole class of them. And again, we've only gone driven past them, but there is Addison's disease, and a person can have Hashimoto thyroiditis plus Addison's disease. Um, There could be hypoparathyroidism, chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis, and then also there is Hashimoto's thyroiditis with type 1 diabetes. So when it occurs in males, Sometimes that association occurs. Okay. So these APSs, these autoimmune polyendocrine syndromes, do link up some kind of genetic predisposition, although it's not that penetrant or well worked out. But there do appear to be what are known as autoimmune regulatory mutations, and those would be type 1 APS. And then there are X-linked 
forehead box P3, that's the transcription factor, FOXO P3. And those are variants of a pathogenesis known as the IPEX syndrome, which again, we haven't discussed, at least not recently. So what are the mechanisms of Hashimoto thyroiditis? What's going on there? Well, the initial presentation is an autoimmune enlargement of the thyroid. And in terms of prodromal accounting for uh, contracting the disease, there may be environmental factors such as diet. There is a non-completely penetrant genetic background. But there are also polymorphisms in HLA. That's the human leukocyte antigen. Now, we talked about this before, remember? There's also a linkage with T lymphocyte associated for this is cytotoxic uh, T lymphocyte, um, and that goes to the locus L4, okay? There's a link between a protein tyrosine phosphatase and a non receptor type. Tyrosine phosphatase. This HT has also been linked to other diseases that are at least loosely associated with other autoimmune diseases that are X chromosome inactivation linked. And we talked about a couple of those already. But basically, you're talking about a problem with tolerance at the level of lymphocytes, T and B lymphocytes, and loss of tolerance for this disease. <clears throat> now, the presentation of Hajimoto's thyroiditis is, of course, the production of autoantibodies, <clears throat> pro-inflammatory cytokines, particularly interleukin-2 receptor and interleukin-2, interleukin-7 and interleukin 7 receptor. Also adhesion proteins like CD14 and 40. All of those genetic susceptibilities, which I've just now briefly mentioned, when looking at the specific locus, register with high levels of methylation, histone modification, and RNA, RNA interference including with long non-coding RNAs. So there's a great deal, and I mentioned this a couple of lectures ago, a great deal of epigenetic modifications that link up with autoimmune diseases. Okay? And I explained to you where I thought that association comes from. So Remember that this whole system is revolves around the thyroid hormone. And remember that T3, the triodothyroxine, is the most potent of the hormones, with T4 being a reservoir for that after deiodinization to get to the T3. And I told you that T3 has at least some role in regulating bioenergetics. And that's indeed how I got into this entire discussion. So let's go into this a bit. Oxidative phosphorylation, as you know, is divided up into reactions that are involved in the oxidation of various carbon sources, fatty acids, glucose, and to a less 
extensive um, level amino acids. And you know that the, oxid the oxidation of those carbon sources as dietary substrates leads to the reduction of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide and, and flavin adenine dinucleotide. And we talked about just recently the NMPT enzyme related to NAD salvage, salvage metabolism in autoimmune disease, right? So keep that in mind. So beyond that, something very interesting. Besides sometimes problems with generating a delta mu H, which is generating the proton pumping force across the intermitochondrial membrane because of a lack of oxidation of the reduced nucleotides. So this would be a failure in the ETC, which we've already covered. There can be a problem with translocation, effective translocation of the reducing power into the mitochondrion. Likewise, there could be a problem with the components of the electron transport chain that come from the nuclear genome. Okay? Those have also been linked to this. Now, this here we're just talking about bioenergetic lesions. I'm not saying any of these are directly related to Hashimoto's. I'm just reminding you of all of this detail. That within bioenergetics, we we don't we don't normally consider a lack of expression of some of the axoreductases in the ETC, but those are linked to autoimmune diseases. How one is the increase in reactive oxygen that can be generated because of uncoupling of that redox. Uh, that means an incomplete reduction of molecular oxygen to water. It's one reason. The other reason is. The whole uh, so you're building up reactive oxygen and that can induce an inflammatory response directly, but also a lack of ATP synthesis can cause the cell to go into autophagy or indeed even program cell death. And some of that program cell death is apoptosis, which generally does not induce a secondary immune response. But because iron is released in the mitochondria, the mitochondria um, are degraded, ferritosis can occur, and ferritosis definitely causes a secondary inflammatory response because of the iron, okay? And the iron's working directly also with generating, because of Fenton reactions and such, more reactive oxygen, such as the hydroxyl anion, and of course, superoxide and H2O2, right? So keep that in mind as well. So you have also problems with ATP synthase, the phosphate transporter, the adenosine nucleotide translocase, that's the ANT, and any substance that might dissipate the delta mu H across the inner mitochondrial membrane. Now that's known as anything that dissipates the delta mu H that uncouples from ATP synthesis is called the protein, proton leak. The proton leak. Now in humans, 
there are three adenine nucleotide translocase isoforms. These are A and Ds, one, two, and three. Okay. These again are adenosine nucleotide translocases. Each of those ants are coded by unique genes. But the relative stoichiometry of the three ant isoform messenger RNAs and then polypeptides translated from those messenger RNAs plays a role in the potential for pathogenesis. So ant isoforms can be expressed in multiple tissues or uniquely only in certain tissues. Okay. So for example, ANT1, remember that's this translocase, is transcribed in terminally differentiated skeletal muscle, heart, and brain. But ANT2 is mainly expressed in cells that are capable of massive proliferation and regeneration. And some of those cells can be renal, spleen, hepatic, and of course, fibroblasts and leukocytes and lymphocytes. Okay. So the ANT3 messenger RNA proportion is not normally expressed in any of those tissues I've already described to you. But there is specific ANT isoform expression during, during the process of cellular differentiation, particularly in immune cells. So there's a great deal of regulation there. So when you examine the kinetic response of the delta mu H, remember that's the pro electrochemical proton gradient across the inner mitochondrial membrane. You can discuss delta mu H producers and delta mu H consumers. And that process is related to the alteration of a euthyroid to a hypothyroid pathology. So when you go from euthyroid to hyperthyroid, that also can occur, and that's another pathology. So hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism have been described, and these are linked up directly to alterations in the delta mu H across the inner mitochondrial membrane. That's right. As I said, thyroid hormone directly related to the regulation of bioenergetics. Very complicated setup, but part of it is controlling the actual production of some of these transcripts, transcripts such as the ANTs. So an inefficient production at the transcriptional level of adenosine nucleotide translocase will fail to deliver ADP to the inner mitochondrial space, to the mitosome. Likewise, will fail to translocate now produced ATP from oxfos out into the cytoplasm. So remember all that specificity that I said about ANTs 1, 2, and 3? This is where you see a lot of dysregulation, and this can be linked to hypo or hyperthyroidism. 
Now that hypo or hyperthyroidism is not Hashimoto's thyroiditis. The thyroiditis, as the name says, is an inflammation of the thyroid because of infiltrating lymphocytes. But you can see that that kind of infiltration and then damage to the thyroid could induce a status such as the pathology of hypothyroidism. And in some cases, because of alterations of flux across the membrane, a hyperthyroid uh, process can also be invoked by thyroid damage. Now, that has to do with the translocation of the iodide. Okay, remember, that's very important for the synthesis of the thyroid hormone. You understand this, right? So it's very, all that I went through these, uh, a couple of days ago, that long lecture of all the different um, factors necessary to start with the stimulus all the way through the proteins that will deliver the thyroglobulin and then the proteases and then the iodination and then the deiodination and then the translocation of the thyroid hormone across the membrane to go into circulation. All of that is tied up into this process and can be affected directly by an inflammation of the thyroid. All right. So, and this is where A and T comes in, these translocases. So, it's been reported that A and T activity and both the cytosolic and mitochondrial ADP to ATP ratios are affected by the status of the thyroid. And indeed, in animal models, an injection of T3 into a hypothyroid rat induces a twofold increase in that rat liver mitochondrial A and T content. And subsequent to that, multiple fold increase in the activity of the translocation. Okay, so this is how we know these things. Now that's in an animal model. Okay. Now state three respiration, which I've talked a lot about a lot recently, can also be directly increased by T3, thyroid hormone that's a triodinated form. Now, why is that? How does that work? What's the mechanism? Well, T3 regulates mitochondrial calcium uptake, which in turn increases mitochondrial dehydrogenase activity. And that dehydrogenase activity, for example, the dehydrogenase is in the TCA cycle, will enhance any DH and FADH2 production, you see. So in the transition from euthyroidism to hyperthyroidism, there is an increase in electron flow in the ETC. And that can result, depending on the stoichiometry of the proteins and their poise and the level of NADH to NAD and FADH2 to FAD, okay, those, at least those Two considerations can result in either an increased amount of the components of the respiratory chain or an increased 
reduction state. So this is a transcriptional control. And then obviously translation and embedding of those polypeptides into DETC, all regulated by T3. So that means that T3 seems to be directly and indirectly capable of activating the transcription of both nuclear and mitochondrial respiratory gene products. And this includes an increase in the amount of cytochromes, which obviously is going to modify and regulate electron transport, and also directly and indirectly control the level of reactive oxygen production. Okay. So all of this is associated with looking at um, the various oxidation states of the complex itself, how much ATP is being generated per flux of the ETC, and then looking at the level of the polypeptides in the mitochondria. This is an animal model. As associated with T3 activity. So let's go back and talk about the human thyroid peroxidase. Remember that enzyme? TPO. It's an oxidoreductase. And remember what the reaction is that it catalyzes the thyroid hormone synthesis at the apical membrane, the so called colloid interface of thyrocytes. And the reaction is iodination, tyrosyl residues of thyroglobulin, and then subsequent coupling of the iodotyrosyl residues to form the thyroid hormone, the mature product. So TPO, now this is very significant, is a major antigenic target for autoantibodies in autoimmune thyroid diseases, including Hashimoto's. Okay. Now, we still haven't gotten to why female versus male is prevalent. Now, the last lecture, we were getting into some of that detail, if you recall, potential detail, right? But here we're going, we're just talking about bioenergetics, just telling you how the disease presents at the biochemical level. So you have antibodies to this thyroid peroxidase and all of these autoimmune thyroid diseases. And again, they have a special acronym. They are called AITDs, right? So polyclonal TPO antibodies present in the sera of patients with AITDs reacts with conformational epitopes that are restricted to an immunodominant region comprising two overlapping protein domains, A and B, they're called, on the TPO. Those regions are defined because of competition experiments with looking at the different domains with a whole panel of murine monoclonal antibodies and when compared to those monoclonal antibodies, patient, human patient autoantibodies. So studies have been performed to look at where those antibodies are expressed and what is the specific antigen that's acting as an epitope 
to enhance the production of the autoantibodies and which are which deliver to the thyroid, causing thyroid damage because of the infiltration of the lymphocytes. Okay. So in the Murie model, there's been multiple identification of the amino acids that make up the epitopes that the autoantibodies respond to. All right. So human TPO gene is on chromosome 2. And it's comprised of 150 kilobases with 17 exons, 16 introns. The mature protein, once translated, is almost 1,000 amino acids, about 930. It has a large N-terminal extracellular, so-called ectodomain, a single transmembrane region, and a very limit cytoplasmic C-terminus. The ectodomain is comprised of an N-terminal signal peptide, which is the propeptide, and then three domains. The N-terminal myeloperoxidase domain, that's MPO, and it's a residue is 142 to 738. It's a big part of the protein. A complement control protein domain, those are residues 730, 97, 95. And then the C-terminal epidermal growth factor domain, so-called EGF-like, which is 796 to 841 in the sequence. Signal peptide is encoded by a component of exon 2, but the exact physiological cleavage site has not really been mapped very clearly because there seems to be splice variants. Don't know whether other splice variants play a role in normal physiology or pathophysiology. Yes, that's true. See how complex this thyroid hormone is? It's extremely complex. Now, it's been suggested that that cleavage site occurs in a couple of important junctions. I'm not going to give you all the detail there, but it has gotten that far. Okay. All right. So what else? Newly synthesized TPO is transported to the endoplasmic reticulum to the, from the ER, I mean, to the cell surface. And that's via the Golgi, of course. Now, during processing and intracellular trafficking, TPO will react with molecular chaperones. Of course it will. Calnexin, calreticulin, and BIP. So chaperone polypeptides. This um, TPO also undergoes several post-translational modifications. What do you think is happening? Because it starts off with the ER. Of course, multiple types of glycosylation ornamentation. There's also the fixation of heme into the protein. And there's proteolytic processing that trims the final polypeptide. And then it ends up being dimerized reactivity. Okay? So TPO itself is, is just, just the protein itself is a highly complicated history. So you understand why it's very difficult to get a specific lens on these autoantibody, autoimmune diseases, in particular these thyroid type of diseases. Because 
there are so many targets where there could be a locus of failure associated with any one of these multiple processing points for this is just the enzyme that, that's the that's the oxidase right so you understand how complex this is that's why i'm telling you all this information so so i only have about a minute left we're going to get to the point to tell you that thyroid dysfunction far more common in women than in men that female predominance is attributed to what differences seem to be occurring in the immune response between men and women. And we've covered some of this already. Overactive macrophage, M1, and then all the alterations with neutrophils and dendritic cells we went through. The eosinophils play a major role as well as a lot of allergies in females. And now we're talking, once again, because we've already covered twice before, I think, T lymphocytes, and then we also talked about B lymphocytes and the antibody production itself. All of this leads to autoimmune disease. So obviously, it's the immune response that's playing a significant role here. But now how we're generating epitopes within the thyroid hormone complex delivery system how that is erupts or generates, that becomes a focus of attention. I said diet may play a role. So I found many papers that talked about dietary alterations. There's a genetic component, but doesn't seem very penetrant. And from there, we'll go on. Uh, I have to finish now. Dr. Dan Guerra, uh, coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios. Bye for now.